It is a delightful morning. For me personally, I'm very grateful for my sister being with us. It's not often we get to go to church together. We both have things to do on Sunday mornings, it seems. But I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for my church family and the support you have of our children. And I'm also grateful for the feedback and the excitement that we have received regarding our shared readings and our sermon series over the past few weeks. During the season of Lent, I've enjoyed journeying alongside you together to the cross by way of entering the passion of Jesus by Amy Jo Levine, our shared readings. It has been fun to teach classes and to, to write sermons and to read these things together. I'm looking out at many that were with us on Thursday or Sunday as we have these discussions. And today we are entering the final stretch of the season. We begin this morning the penultimate week of Lent. You'll likely notice everything that we've discussed for the most part has all taken place during the last week of Jesus' life. And that's in large part because about 40% of the gospel texts are dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. So seeing as how that last week is so important, we hope you will join us as we remember it together in more detail next week, beginning our Holy Week. We hope that you'll be with us on Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, and join us in our devotionals and midweek services. But this morning, this morning we turn our attention back to the scripture, and I would like for us to focus on the night before the night. The night before Jesus' crucifixion and death, the night he had his last supper with the disciples. And I would like to preach from the subject, risking losing friends. Will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. Have you ever had one instance change the way you see someone? Maybe one moment that redefined your relationship? Maybe there's a celebrity or an athlete that you used to look up to, but then they did something that was less than stellar, and you never saw them quite the same way again. In 2001, my school choir was singing in New York City, and we happened to be staying at the same hotel as the Atlanta Braves. And you know me, I'm a big Braves fan. We waited every morning to get autographs from all the players. And I loved all the players on the 2001 team. Chipper Jones, John Smoltz, Tom Glavin, Andrew Jones, Javier Lopez, just to name a few. And then I remember that John Rocker would blow past us every morning. Just a group of kids wanting some autographs and he said that he was afraid we'd make him spill his coffee. Now perhaps it was a bad morning for John. In high insight, you know, it would be a lot to be hounded every day to give autographs and be berated by people constantly. And so maybe Rocker was just off that day, even though by all accounts that was kind of his personality. But nevertheless, that day changed the way I saw John Rocker, and he is forever my least favorite brave. I'll never see him the same way. One moment can change how we see someone. It can also change the way we relate to them. I'm sure we all had a moment in our formative years where we realized our parents might not actually be perfect. And children, young children in here, close your ears. Especially mine. 
I love my parents very much. They're with us today, both in person and in, in spirit. My mother couldn't be here due to her not feeling well this morning. But when I think about my parents, the phrase that most accurately describes my mom and dad is that not all superheroes wear capes. But they would be the first to admit that even they are human. I don't remember when I figured out that my mom wasn't a mind reader, but there must have been a day where her superpowers faded just a bit. Because as a young boy, it was like she could see into the future. And she would always know right before I was about to do the thing I wasn't supposed to do. And she'd say, don't do that. And I'd say, how did you know? How did you know I was about to touch that? How did you know I was about to drop that? How did you know I was about to do something I wasn't supposed to do? But one day my mom went from being a telepath to just a wise woman who understood problematic behavior by her son. And though she was still my mom, I began to see her in a new light. Not as a little boy, but as a young man. And that changed our relationship. Not for the worse, just changed. Our lesson from John's gospel, from Luke's gospel this morning that is echoed by John's gospel, is one of those same type of relationship-altering moments for Jesus and his disciples. One of those moments that changes the way that they know each other. Here at the Last Supper, Jesus does something very powerful that was meant to change the nature of the relationship between he and his closest followers. And for us to understand this reality a little more clearly, I think we need to ask three questions about this text. The first is, what is different about the way that Jesus treats this particular Passover meal? The second question is, how does this behavior risk the relationship that Jesus has with his apostles? And lastly, we should consider, what does it mean for us to risk relationships in our own lives? And so first, let's consider, what is unique about the way that Jesus treats this Passover meal? What's different about it than the ones that became, came before it or the ones that came after? Have you ever heard of the Seder meal? Have you ever participated in a Seder meal? The Seder is the modern version of the meal that the Jews would celebrate for centuries during the festival of the Passover. The Passover is what is going on during our text this morning. And each year during Passover, even still today, Jewish persons join with their families and sometimes their friends, and they celebrate in this highly ritualized and symbolic affair. They get together and they eat certain foods at certain times, each of which symbolize something different unleavened bread and reminds them of the hurried nature of the Israelites trying to escape Egypt. They didn't have time for the bread to rise. They eat horseradish to remind them of the bitterness of slavery. There is salt water to represent the tears of those who were enslaved. And there are four glasses of wine which each represent something symbolic throughout the meal. Many churches will host a Seder meal on Thursday nights during Holy Week or sometime during Lent inviting a local Jewish rabbi or an Old Testament scholar to lead them through the occasion. But if you read this week's chapter by Amy Jill Levine, as we think about the Last Supper of Jesus, she points out two things that I've never really thought about. The first is that modern Seder is not the same experience that Jesus shared with his disciples. It is an entirely Jewish custom that has evolved in new ways over the past two millennia. And so if we were to replicate Jesus' Last Supper, the Seder is not actually the best 
avenue for that aim because Jesus's was different. And secondly, it doesn't actually make much sense for us to practice the Seder meal for anything other than appreciation of other religious customs because Jesus became our Seder meal. It's not because it was just the last time he ate with his disciples that we called this the Last Supper. We call it the Last Supper is because it was the last time that we needed it, that we needed the Passover sacrifice. So that begs the question, how was that Last Supper different than the ones that came before it? Well, for starters, modern Seder meals do not have the one thing, the one main thing that makes the Passover the Passover meal, and that is the sacrificed lamb. A family would bring a lamb to the temple, it would be sacrificed, and that lamb's sacrifice would then absolve that family of their sins. The whole point of Passover was to sacrifice a lamb as their form of repentance. Likewise, when a person was going to celebrate Passover, they had to do it in Jerusalem. That's why we said the city of 40,000 was overtaken by over 200,000 during Passover because it was a pilgrim holiday. And so if you're celebrating Passover outside of Jerusalem, it's not the same as the way Jesus did it. There's no more temple, there's no more sacrificial lamb. But other than the customs that can no longer be observed, what Jesus said was very different than what was typically said at a Passover meal. What Jesus said during that last supper should cause us to pause. It should cause a little shock. After they had eaten their meal, Jesus took some bread and he broke it and he gave thanks to God for the bread and then he gave it to his disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. And then after supper was over, he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take, drink from this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin body, blood, and new covenant. These things were all new at the Last Supper. They might sound normal now because they're part of our communion liturgy and we will hear them again in just a moment. But if you think about it, the practices Jesus is describing is far from normal. And they definitely didn't sound any more normal back when Jesus originally said it. One of the Jewish laws was that they were not to touch blood or else they would be unclean. And here Jesus is telling them to drink his blood. Likewise, eating human flesh was definitely not part of the Jewish or really any civilized religious customs then or now. But what does Jesus say? Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. And to top it off, it was God who was in the covenant making business. And there were no new covenants being made in the first century. God had already made the covenants with the Israelite people throughout the Old Testament. The disciples knew his covenants. They were part of the Jewish tradition. They honored him. But here Jesus is saying, those are now fulfilled. And I'm making a new covenant. Body, blood, a new covenant. This entire monologue of Christ has to sound incredibly shocking to the disciples. Just as it should still sound shocking to us. But it was this exact thing, this exact changing of the typical pattern that made this supper different from everyone that came before it and that informed the answer to our second question. 
how does this story help us understand the way Jesus is risking relationship with his disciples? Well, he's risking relationships changing by changing the dynamics of the relationship. He's risking the relationships that he has entirely by redefining the way they know one another. When he redefines the ancient sacred ritual, Jesus is doing something terribly risky. He's giving away his power. He is elevating the status of his followers. Have you ever thought about that? Because remember, up until this moment, Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the rock star. Jesus is the awesome athlete or the celebrity. He's the one that everybody wants to be like, wants to look up to, wants to be around. He's the one from which they receive all the things that they want, knowledge, blessings, healing, gifts. But on this night, he tells them, now it's your turn. They go from being recipients to participants. He tells them, you will share with me in my calling. And he does this in each of the gospel stories. But mainly as we read in Luke's gospel and as we consider from John's gospel, he does it in ways that are very different than maybe you or I would. In each of these stories, he invites the disciples to the ministry of cross-bearing. And in John's gospel, he washes the feet of the disciples to show them what leadership looks like. And he tells Peter, unless you let me wash you, unless you let me be your servant, you have no place with me. And he tells them to go out and do this for others. Become the lowest, become the foot washer. And only then will you be great. Only then will you be able to understand what I am doing. And in this Luke passage, he teaches them about greatness. And he says, it's your turn to inherit what I'm inheriting. But to do so, you must understand that if you want to be great, you have to serve. If you want to be the best, you have to be the least. And by inviting them to eat his flesh and drink his blood, he is moving them from the people who are being served to the people who are doing the serving. He's telling them it is no longer about just receiving the blessings from Christ. It is about offering those blessings to others. He's telling them, now, now it's your turn. And the risk here is the disciples had the option to say no. They didn't want to do that. And initially, they did. Initially, they said no. And they abandoned Jesus. And they denied Jesus. And they didn't participate in what Jesus had wanted them to. I mean, it would be hard. Think about it. If you'd been the recipient and the witness to some of those amazing work in the world, it'd be tough to switch from being a spectator to performer, right? It'd be difficult from going and just witnessing the work of Jesus to then going executing the work of Jesus. And so Jesus is telling them, just as they hate me, they will also hate you. But you will do greater things than me and you also must testify for you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus is risking them turning and running for the hills at such a request. At such a challenge that might seem daunting. But he does it anyway. He does it because he knows it's the only way that his ministry will live on. That it's only through the disciples and those that come after through which the kingdom will be made known on earth as it is in heaven. He knows he will soon depart 
but it's up to those he leaves behind to become what the world needs them to be. Which brings me to our last question this morning. The thing I hope you will also consider when you think about participating in the Last Supper, when you think about coming to this holy table. Jesus did unexpected things, things that were out of the norm. He broke tradition and he began a new way of relating to the people whom he'd known for years, all in a risky attempt to do what he knew was right for the kingdom. He stopped just doing for the people and invited them to participate. And he invites us to the same thing. He invites us to stop just coming to church and to be the church. He invites us to stop just receiving, but to give. It's not bad to receive. It is not bad to be present. Those things fill us up. But it can't be the end of our Christian journey. Receiving grace is not all that makes us Christian. It's also offering it. When we hear the liturgy of Holy Communion, we hear each week that the calling can no longer to just be recipients of God's grace, but to carry that grace out into the world. And if we're going to be the people that God calls us to, if we're going to eat of the flesh and drink of the blood, it means that we will also be risking challenges and changes to the relationships we hold most dear. Following Jesus with a real and engaged faith means we might disagree with our families of origin. It means we might risk altering some of the relationships in our lives that we know are less than holy. It means that we might be seen differently by our peers or our coworkers for the things we choose to do. Giving up our Sunday mornings to come to worship as opposed to not. Going out and serving Meals on wheels, as opposed to staying home and resting. Fostering children, instead of wasting our room to spare. Whatever it might be that you do, that looks a little foreign to the rest of the world. Those are the very things that Christ invites us to bring to the table. To bring to this holy table. And so Christ is inviting us to also participate since we too are co-inheritors of the kingdom. When we do so, we are sharing in his burden of death, but also in the joy of resurrection. And Christ invites to his table all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with God and one another. All are invited to the table. All are welcome into the work with Christ. But let us all be warned that we should do so with the recognition that these things come with major risks. And so if these are risks you are willing and ready to take, if you are ready to risk your own relationships, then the best way to experience the last supper the disciples had with Jesus is to participate in Holy Communion. It is at this table we too eat the body and drink the blood and we experience the transformation of the new covenant. By receiving in this holy mystery, we are taking on the responsibility to participate in the new relationship with Christ for the transformation of the world. When you come to this table, and though we do it in a different way right now during this pandemic time, when we receive these elements, we come with a sense of renewing our covenant with God and with a covenant with one another. 
We come here seeking to be reconciled to those that we have wronged. We come here being seeking, seeking to be reconciled to God. And to recommit ourselves to giving our prayers, our presence, our gifts, our witness, and our service. Coming to the table means confessing our sins and being reconciled. Are you ready to do that? When you receive Holy Communion, are you ready to be reconciled, to ask for forgiveness, and to offer it? So I remind you this morning, all people are welcome. The Lord's table is open to everyone. But do not take the sacrament lightly. Because when Jesus instituted it, he knew very well the risks involved. But he also knew they were worth it. And I pray the same is true for us as well. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.